Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning, Hillside. Uh, great to be with you again. Uh, let me start by saying I received a number of comments last week about my hair, which has been a slight source of frustration these days, I imagine for you too. So in order not to distract you, again, I was able to secure some special and secret arrangements to have my hair cut and uh, a slight style change even. I mean, I was frustrated. I was about to shave it off, but that created a little marital disharmony. And uh, none of us need that right now. So for the sake of the church and for my marriage, I ventured into the dark underworld of lockdown hairstyling, but mainly because my wife's opinion really matters. Now, speaking of what really matters, okay, Paul is about to teach us how to determine what really matters. So we're in a series called Confined and Content, and we're looking at the book of Philippians, which Paul wrote from a prison cell. And even though uh, this is a hardship for him, a radical shift uh, in normalcy for this high energetic, highly productive church planter. He's showing no signs of nuttiness or neediness, but rather perfectly content. So he says he's learned the secret to be comfortable, at peace in any circumstance. And he wants us to learn it. I think we would all agree that this is sort of next level spirituality. Uh, for all of us. And Paul made it clear that this is a work of God. And so you've got to ask God, you've got to pray, you've got to be in the presence of God. And that's what we saw last week. He prays and he prays regularly and he tells us why he prays because this is not achievable on our own. And so his message is essentially this, a change in circumstances, even life-threatening ones, should not impede or halt spiritual progress. And so making spiritual progress centers around two things. Two words we used last week, sincere and blameless. Paul wants us to be when we stand before God one day. Sincere had the idea of motives, remember, and blameless had the idea of uh, healthy relationships. And so Paul's asking the question, you know, what drives me? You know? And... What obstacles are in the way of me having a healthy relationship? And one of the things I want you to know is that any, uh, the kind of relationship you have with Christ is the kind of relationship that's going to go to the depths of who you are and ask why you do things. But it's also going to come outside of you, beyond you, to other people in your world and how you relate to them. That's what it means to know him and and to be in relationship with him. And so in verses 9 and 10 in this text, he prays very specifically for the Philippians. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. Now, uh, the key line in here is approve the things that are excellent. Approve means to test, and to examine so that you can decide. So that's our thinking. Remember we said last week, Paul wants you to think and to evaluate 
And then there's this word that's translated here, excellent. Uh, and it means best or what's essential, what's vital, what's superior. All right, so if you're going to translate that line, you might say, you've got to be able to decide what really matters. Now, how great is the need for this right now? Because certainly confinement has exposed some misplaced priorities. Uh, maybe you've overvalued some things. Or you've banked on the wrong things. Uh, and you realize some pursuits just aren't worth it. And Paul is saying, in prayer, I get to examine before God my motives and my relationships so that I know what really matters. I got to do this sort of internal diagnostic uh, so that I'm always spiritually progressing, always aware of what's driving me and always aware of what my relationships uh, are like. So that anywhere and anytime I can be spiritually progressing. I, I took my car in this week also to get sort of an oil change and uh, an inspection. And so while I'm waiting, the guy, you know, calls me over and he says, hey, I need to show you something. He tested my battery, you know, as part of the process. And he says, uh, look at this. And he shows me this little gadget, you know, that shows my battery's all but dead. He didn't know how I was driving. So this is exactly what he said to me. I, I wrote it down. Change it now or you'll be sitting by the side of the road. And you won't like that. That's what he said. Well, he's right. I mean, you do a diagnostic to see how you're doing. And nobody wants to be on the sort of the side of the road spiritually, not gaining progress because of the certain circumstances. Uh, so I had to change that battery. And that's what Paul wants for us. Uh, and he gets very specific about what this, what this means because there's, uh, there's a key in making this happen. Christ has got to be your ultimate desire and drive and the one who dictates the health of your relationships. Okay, in other words, let me ask you this. This is maybe a better way to, to uh, express it. How do you define life? Um, what do you live for? Well, in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, you got to let this sink in. It's astounding, and it's as challenging as anything you'll read on the spiritual life. Because this is Paul's definition of life. If I have Christ, I'm living. And not even death can stop it. In fact, it can only enhance it. Uh, death would be considered probably the, your last overwhelming circumstance of life. And it can only bring gain and profit. In other words, my life with Christ is a way of investing in what is real, meaningful, ultimately lasting, and eternal. You know, I'm finally living for someone that not even death can affect. Um... Bart Ehrman is a uh, staunch opponent of Christianity. And he's just come out with a new book, Denying the Afterlife. And in it, he writes, No need to fear death, since it is simply ceasing to exist. <laughs> I read that. Was, That's the reason I fear death. Um, and how different would the world look if you didn't fear death. Uh, if, if 
Amen. How much more would life be worth living if you realized you were going to live forever? I mean, this is something Christ brings to the dynamic of a person's heart and life. So if you live with the view that death is the end, okay, the end of everything, then what are you living for? You know, what's, what's the point? Uh, who cares what drives you and who cares about sort of the uh, status and health of your relationships? But if Christ is in your life, if someone is in your life that can make you desire something past this life, make you desire something eternal, eternal things, and know that you're going to have relationships that last forever, that, that changes the way you live. And that's what I want. And that's what Paul is saying. Christ has to be the definition of your life in order for you to be able to assess what matters. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, see how serious he is, Philippians 3.8, where he says, I count all things but loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. There's just nothing more valuable. And then in this same chapter, in verse, 21, in verse 20, he says, uh, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This is Paul magnifying Christ. What does it mean to magnify Christ? Um, Well, at both ends of chapter 1, he tells us what that means. Uh, In verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So one of the ways you magnify Christ in your life is you want to share him. You want your circumstances, no matter what they are, to make sure you're sharing Christ. On the other hand, at the end of the chapter, he says, only conduct yourselves, in verse 27, in a manner worthy of the gospel. So you got to live it. So you got to share it and you got to live it. You say, the gospel is the redemptive story. It's Jesus' death and resurrection. That's something I want people to know. But I also want to experience the death of self, so that I know what it means to have real life. It's both of those. And this is how you rise above circumstances. This is how you evaluate all reality and determine what matters. It's not the circumstances themselves. It's how do my circumstances help me share Christ and how do I die to self so that I can really live. And Paul's confinement um, We're seeing how he does both of these. In chapter 1 and 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Listen to this. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. I want you to think about this because it's his circumstances we need to learn from. So imagine Paul is chained to a guard. They have four hour shifts. That's six a day. Uh, You might think to yourself, poor Paul. But maybe it's, uh, no, poor guard. He's chained these guards to the best evangelist in the world, a person who's made Christ the center of his life. Now, what must that have been like? Uh, The Praetorian Guard is about 10,000 soldiers. You know, here they are in Rome. Uh, These are elite, hand-picked soldiers by Caesar. Um, so you ask the question, how are these guys going to be reached for Christ? They're enemies of the, of the gospel. They're enemies of Christianity, enemies of the Jews. 
How are they going to be reached? Well, imagine God saying something like this. I think I'm going to take my best man off the streets, uh, out of successful, thriving ministry, and I'm going to put him in a prison cell. Uh, And it's working. Um, This is what John Piper refers to in his new little book called Coronavirus in Christ, setbacks that are strategic. And so here, here, you know, Philippi was a Roman colony, which means they're obviously under their rule. How nice would it be for the Philippians to know that the gospel is penetrating the empire at the highest levels? So at the end of the book, Paul can say, hey, there's some new believers in Caesar's household uh, that send their greetings to you. You have brothers and sisters at the highest level in the Roman. And that's all because I'm confined in a prison. Now you think about what that says about the heart of God and how he longs to reach people and why we need to have a heart to share the gospel. Uh, Because he'll put us in circumstances for that very reason. So it means wherever God has you, it's always from a redemptive perspective, strategic. And right now, for us, that's our homes and our families. You know, at the end of the book of Malachi, uh, God says in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, you know, I really, in, in the end times, I'm going to turn a father's heart toward his children and his children's hearts toward their fathers, because that's his goal. Uh, this is a chance to sort of reevaluate, reset, repair the most important societal unit. Uh, the hope is that we come out of this with healthier, stronger families. And probably the best article I've read, especially on leadership uh, in a long time from the New York Times, uh, somebody interviewed uh, Dove Seedman. And uh, it's an article about what leadership looks like in crisis. And he says, when you press the pause button on a computer, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, they start. That's when they begin to rethink and reimagine. So he quotes, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson. In each pause, I hear the call. And this is what Paul is saying. I've had a pause, and in it, I hear the call. To bring Christ, to bring hope, to bring health, to bring love into a prison cell or into my house by showing Christ, living for him, and sharing him. You know, uh, as, an, as a parent of adult children, I... Uh, I can tell you that what matters more to me than anything else is their, is their spiritual condition. Um, and interacting with parents who are older and have older children, the thing they, that, that keeps them up at night is, is the spiritual condition of their children. And even though when you have big kids, there are bigger issues. That's the biggest one. Uh, over the last five weeks during this lock-in, Gail and I have attained a granddaughter, a second daughter-in-law, and a puppy. And all of them live with us. Um, It's awesome and crazy at the same time. So at the beginning of April, I married Eric and Marion with just five people in the room. Uh, Five people in attendance. Best wedding ever. Uh, We just afterwards sat around and uh, with his brothers and 
We all gave some parenting advice to him and some marital advice. It was really fun and got really deep, really. Uh, we started talking about uh, Gail and my parenting uh, and let the kids sort of reflect on how we parented them. Uh, there's nothing in the world like having your kids critique your parenting after the fact. Uh, we laughed, told stories. I realized I was a little better of a parent than Gail. It was kind of fun. I just had a good time. Uh, that's not really true. But at the end of the day, what we realized was we did, not, we did, any, we did nothing perfect. Um, there were lots of mistakes in parenting that we could reflect on. But what really came out at the end that was the, that was the I think the bottom line was they said, our, our kids said, we never doubted that your faith was real and that Christ was the center of your lives. And I'll tell you, when you're, when you're finished parenting, that's what you want to be able to say. You can't control the, your kid's outcome. You can't control their faith. You can't control what they believe. Um, but you want to hear them say, we know it was real for you. Um, so in your homes right now, this is a great opportunity to be living your faith out real. I'm going to give you one other dimension of this, okay, because... We said, you're not just sharing the faith in this environment, confinement, but you're also living it, okay? Dying to self so that you can live. And that's the other component that Paul brings in. Because while Paul's in jail doing this, there's some other people out there preaching the gospel in the area, you know, that know Paul's in prison. They're believers, um, they're preaching Christ, but at the same time, they're bad-mouthing Paul. And he says in verses 15 to 17, some are preaching Christ, for sure, but out of envy and strife. Uh, and he says, out of selfish ambition, rather than pure motives, wanting to cause me more distress in this imprisonment. Now, this is just adding insult to injury, literally. They're throwing Paul under the bus, putting him down to make themselves look better. Um, this could have made Paul an emotional wreck. It would have us, right? Their actual goal was to present Paul in a certain light that would make him anxious and insecure. And I'll tell you, if Paul's motivation in life was to look good or to win the approval of you know, others, this would have devastated him. The word distress can mean external. I mean, he might have had legal problems because of what they were saying about him, but it also affected him emotionally. And this would have made him angry and bitter and defensive. And so in verse 13, he says, what then? Which is literally his way of saying, what does that matter? What does that matter? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And here's the principle of how you let the gospel, how you live the gospel out. Paul refuses to make this ordeal about himself. It's the surest way to screw things up. Rivalry, competition, envy, selfishness, they're destructive. And I'll tell you what will ruin your home faster than anything else. Is you make you and your needs and your problems the point. 
You know, you're probably used to having your certain space, uh, things a certain way, maybe even being the center of attention. Can I tell you, nobody's famous at home. Uh, Now is the time. It's not the time to try to be first, to be right, to be thought of, because you'll bring the whole you'll bring the whole thing down. Um, can you imagine what it'd have been like for those guards who really came to see that Christ was or that Paul was innocent and that everything he did was for Christ? Can you imagine what it'd have been like to be chained to a self-centered prisoner if you were a guard, someone egocentric, neurotic? You know, a nutball worried about only himself. Um, they were serving. Uh, I mean, imagine what would your family say? What's your family going to say when confinement's over? About how you how you dealt with it? Uh, were they serving? Were they loving? Did they give us hope? Did they create less anxiety? This is where you want to be. And that's why you got to examine yourself every day. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm reading Henry Nouwen's book, and, um, you know, he's wrote this diary while he was in a monastery. So he's in this monastery, and, you know, every day he's got a lot of quiet and solitude, and he's examining his life. And uh, one of the fathers who speaks, you know, every morning to the, to the monks uh, was sharing one day that... Uh, about the killdeer, killdeer, it's a bird. Um, he said that bird will fool you by simulating injury to pull your attention away from her eggs, which she lays openly on a sandy place. And, and Henry Nouwen said, oh, that's beautiful. Neurosis is a weapon. How often have I asked for pity for a very unreal problem in order to pull people's attention away from what I didn't want them to see? great. But then he goes on to say, you know, lots of birds have institutionalized a lot of my defense mechanisms. And he brings up the cowbird who lays her eggs in someone else's bird's nest to let them do the brooding job. Or the Baltimore Oriole who imitates the sounds of more dangerous birds to keep the enemies away. Or the red-winged blackbird who keeps screaming so loudly overhead they get tired of her noise and soon have to leave the area uh, that she considers hers. He says, it doesn't take long to realize that I do all that and a lot more to protect myself, to get my own will done. And I wrote down at the end of this, you know, you got at some point, quit your squawking. It's not about you. And that's what Henry Nouwen is teaching us. That's what Paul wants us to know. This is the time to deal with anything that you're doing that's sabotaging your home, your own home. It could be an attitude. It could be an addiction. The call is to get out of the way. Uh, Maybe you're being lazy. You might be drinking too much. You might be angry, unhelpful, stubborn, or demanding. I can tell you that with this new environment I'm living in at home, uh, it's really changed everything. Because, you know, Eric and Marion and the baby are living there, the puppy's living there, and it's created new challenges. Uh, the space isn't used the same anymore. Uh, we're working from home. All of us are actually working harder than before all of this, probably like you. Uh, Eric's work requires him 
because uh, he's a uh, sports radio broadcaster. So he's on the fan, uh, 105.3, and he has to, you know, record live from home. So he uses up all the Wi-Fi. So we're not allowed to be on Wi-Fi from 7 to 11 every single night. And we got to be quiet everywhere, which is hard to do with a baby and a puppy. Um, and all those things can make you nuts, and they can make you selfish. Uh, they can make you demanding. But this is not easy, but it's certainly not the time um, for us to be worried about ourselves. It's the time to be giving and loving others. Uh, so I heard a this is a funny story. Steve Amato and his wife, Lynetta, were over at our house. They were telling us a story. This is right before this, this whole confinement thing. And he was telling us the story that, you know, and I love his, his stories about when he was a paramedic because he goes into these homes and the craziest things happen. So he says he goes into the home of this elderly man who's having a hard time breathing, and he and his partner go into the master bedroom. This sort of elderly man who's sort of on the bigger side is sitting on the edge of the bed. And he uh, and he's, he can't breathe, and so they get equipment on him, and they're 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 you know trying to get him stabilized. The wife is not anywhere to be found. It's like she does; she's not even in there, seemingly un, you know, not very concerned. Well, all of a sudden, uh, while they're working on him, sort of desperately, she sticks her head out of the bathroom and says, uh, "Don't do anything heroic." <laughs> I was like. Steve said, we didn't know how to answer that. It's like, don't go overboard trying to save my husband. And then they realize they got to take him to the hospital. So they go, we got to get him to the hospital. And she pops her head out again and says, I'll get there when I can. It was like overwhelming uh, for them to see just how little she cared. Well, I want to tell you, this is the time for heroics. It's going to take heroics. And that's living for Christ in order for our homes to be healthy. Now, I know you're dealing with your own unique craziness, uh, probably far worse than me. But this is a critical time. To magnify Christ in everything is the key to overcoming all of your circumstances. Um, if it's about him, if it's about making him known to our families, even if our families are the people God wants us to share with right now and to live for him, that's what helps us rise above the circumstances and find anxiety. No matter what the circumstances, got to be about him. So let me just invite you, um, if you're sitting there and you're saying, uh, um, maybe you say, I'm not living for the right things right now. And the truth is, I don't view death as gain or positive. If I think about it at all, it just overwhelms me. It grips me with fear. Let me invite you to surrender your life to Christ. Because he's the answer to both. To living well and to living forever. He came, he lived a perfect life for you, died for you. So his life and death are what make life meaningful and eternity possible. So all you got to do is just say, hey, Lord, I don't want to live another day without you. I want you to be at the center of my life. I want to be with you for 
eternity. Invite Christ into your heart and life right now. Father, I pray that that happens. I pray we um, do an evaluation of our hearts right now and find out if either you define our lives or you don't. And if you're not right now, that we're probably experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety and conflict. And until we put you in the right place in our heart and life, we can't know ultimate contentment. And not only for this life, but for the next. In Jesus' name.